0: I would say that one of the most well-established facts in the whole history of psychology is that altered states are incredibly good for us, and it's not common
1: knowledge. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors, where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Race for Impact. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Mike Flynn. And if you are just joining us, I interview entrepreneurs and leaders who are using their platform to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. Each guest is part of a series such as leadership or mindset. And today we kick off a series I've been working on for a while. It's on disruption. Disruption is definitely another buzzword in the entrepreneurial world but it's closely related to impact. Impact, meaning to strike forcefully, and disruption, meaning to interrupt an event, activity, or process. So what exactly will we be interrupting over the next few weeks? Well, we'll be interrupting your and my thinking, the way that we think about our lives and what we are capable of achieving. We are going to disrupt the norm. These next several guests will change the way you and I think, and inspire us to develop creative, forward-looking solutions to today's and tomorrow's problems and obstacles. Our first guest in the Disruption Series is Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and the co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project. He is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. Today we're going to talk about his latest work, which he co-authored with Jamie Wheel, called Stealing Fire: How Silicon Valley, the Navy SEALs, and Maverick Scientists are revolutionizing the way we live and work. You've probably heard about or read some of his previous work, including Bold, which was called A Visionary Roadmap for Change by President Bill Clinton, or Abundance, which explores the upper limits of societal possibility and breaks down the emerging forces that gives humanity the potential to significantly raise global standards of living over the next 20 to 30 years, or perhaps you've read his previous book, The Rise of Superman, which was one of the most talked about books in 2013, and the first book in history to land on the national bestseller list in sports, science, and business categories all simultaneously. In that book, Stephen decodes the science of flow, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel at our best and perform at our best, you might also think about it as being in the zone. A few of the things we talk about today, the common characteristics that SEAL Team 6 shares with executives at Google, the common denominator that allows people to access flow on a regular basis, or in other words, to perform in the zone on a regular basis, as well as the missteps people make that prevent them from reaching peak performance. So don't be a podcast junkie, bust out your pens and papers, take some notes, and brace for impact while we get in the zone with Stephen Kotler. All right, well, Stephen Kotler, I am really excited to have you on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Uh, the book "Stealing Fire." I mean, there's so many different ways, and and so much that we could talk about in that book, as well as your other books. But I always kick the conversation off on on my podcast with the same first three questions, and the first one is if you, Stephen Kotler, could pick any skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? And I figured there's no better person to ask this question to, then you, Stephen Kotler,
0: Mike, this is just not fair. You're, you're <laughs> jumping in with just a great question. And it's something that I'd like to chew on for a while. I don't, if there's one skill I now possess and I would like to turn into a superpower, I, you know, I, I'm going to take this, I, you know, I'm going to take riding or skiing, which are the two things that matter most to me in the world. And Let's say I have human-like riding and skiing abilities at this point. Maybe they're good, maybe they're bad, but they're human. So I would I would superpower the stuff that I already
1: love. Ooh, that's a I love that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like if if I, if I really wanted to turn one of the things that you know that that I have into a superpower, I would you know I would take a skill I already kind of possess. writing, skiing, uh, my ability to understand animal behavior from kind of running an animal sanctuary. Any one of those, I would, you know, I would massively
1: jack up. Ooh, I love it. I love it. What are you doing? Let's focus on the writing one right now, Um, or you pick whatever one you want, but what are you doing right now to develop that skill into a superpower? Writing is a pretty long answer.
0: <laughs> um, I mean, it, it really is. Um, but I will. So I do a lot of things, and one of the things I do, and I do this every year, so it's you know January three, so we can talk about this. Is I, you know, review. I, you know, I, I, I review basically all of my weaknesses, and I look at what challenges am I really interested in solving over the next year. And which of my weaknesses, if I spent some time training it away, would have the biggest impact on those challenges? And you know, I just finished stealing fire, uh, and every book that I, I, I write, I you know, there's a there's a content goal, right? I want to communicate these ideas. There's a gripping storytelling goal, and then there's a personal kind of writing goal. For example, when I wrote bold, one of the reasons I wrote bold is. Pretty much every business book I've ever read sucked. It just was boring to read. Who, like, I could, I could forget the ideas. It was, you know, I, they, they were most, most business books, I, either they exhausted their ideas by the end of the introduction and re, then just, you know, repeated them for the rest of the book, or they were just boring. So I wanted to try to write a great business book. Was I successful? Who knows? I think kind of partially on that on that one, but each book is a different kind of challenge. And that is also true for my next book. So one of the things I'm doing is I'm working on, you know, a a couple of weak spots in my game right now as as a writer to kind of tackle that next challenge. I can be more specific if you want. That might have been very, very vague and all over the place.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, I was just going to say, because most people, most business gurus, most life coaches, most human performance Coaches, etc., they they totally buck the idea of reviewing weaknesses and and what you just said about reviewing weaknesses and training them away so that you can turn them into something that has a big impact is kind of contrary to everything else that's out there. So so elaborate a little bit more yeah, on me, that. I
0: mean, so so and I and I think this probably I disagree in a couple of places because so. There are a couple of different kinds of weaknesses that I see in my game. I don't, you know, I don't know if I've talked to enough people about this, but one of the things, for example, I, uh, I, you know, came up as a new journalist. That is a, a very specific kind of hyper-detailed storytelling. You know, I did some of it in Rise of Superman, but I really... You know, it wasn't really present in a lot of books since then. So it's part of my game that has atrophied a little bit. There's a lot of storytelling in Stealing Fire, but not the like four five, six thousand word kind of storytelling I'm talking about. So I'm trying to train that skill back up because it's atrophied. I'm not as I'm not as good as I used to be. Uh, on that one. So I want to bring that back up to smack before I start in on a book that's going to require a lot of it. Um, and, I, and, and the thing, you know, the expert advice, by the way, to, uh, on high performance, as I understand it, is if given a choice between training strengths up or weaknesses up, where should you put your attention? And then you have to back up and say, well, why is that advice given as well? And one of the reasons that advice is given is because training has a motivation issue, right? And if you are really engaged in your activity, you're training up a strength, it's more liable to produce flow, especially in the beginning. And flow is such a huge motivator, right? It's so pleasurable that you can often get a lot farther faster playing that game. Right? Focusing on passions and things along those lines. I also believe there's a point, you know, there are points in your career where reevaluation, training up weakness, all that stuff is, is, is really important. And I also think, you know, I keep wanting to play a bigger game, right? Every, 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 the, the way I've learned to level up is go after bigger challenges um and add in layers to my to my career and that requires you know all kinds of new skills that are weaknesses.
1: Mm-hmm. I love what you said that the way you you've learned to level up is by taking on new and bigger challenges is that something that was innate with you or did you have mentors in your life that that kind of impacted and shaped that thinking?
0: You know what's funny about that particular one To me, so uh, it's worth, if you don't mind, and indulge me in a little geek neuroscience for a second.
1: Yeah, go for it. it. So
0: much of high performance, so much of it is about calming down your amygdala. And let's take anything where creativity is required. When your amygdala, which is the brain's danger detector, it's the first filter all incoming information basically runs into. And the more fear you have, a little bit, right? And if you're good at it, you can lean into it. A little bit is great. It focuses attention. It's phenomenal. But too much, there's a real big cognitive downside. It dampens creativity. It dampens optimism. It has a big impact across the boards, especially on creativity. So often, if you're trying to solve, say, creative challenges in your work, you have to get off the problem completely, right? And one of the ways i found to get off the problem is to level up. So when I wanted to transition from being a bartender slash magazine writer into being a full-time magazine writer, I needed to really focus on my book writing. When I really wanted to cement my book writing career, I had to open an animal sanctuary. When I sort of wanted to build my speaking career – You know, and I had to start the Flow Genome Project and so forth. I found that at every step when I was stuck at that particular level, I would have to jump up again. And I learned this on my own. But to get back to your question, what I found interesting about it is around the time I got really cognizant of it, Peter and I were writing bold. Peter Diamandis and I were writing bold. And if you go into Peter's laws, right, which he lives by, uh, which we run down in bold. One of his laws is essentially this same idea, and I don't, you know, I and I think it shows up sort of all over high performance. I don't think it's all that unusual. It's certainly there with entrepreneurship as well.
1: Hmm, that's fascinating. I, you know, I, I thought it was interesting that as you're trying to start something and level up on something, you went and did something completely different or even bigger than, than what you are currently quote unquote focused on. That's a very interesting thing because most people, if they say, I want to become a book writer, they, they focus on writing a book, not opening up an animal sanctuary. Well,
0: Don't, no, don't <laughs> get me wrong. I mean, like you got to like, I didn't stop writing books five, six, seven hours a day. Okay. Right. I kept my focus on what I was doing. You know, I kept doing the work but I also added in something else that was, so let's just take the, the book, the book writing to the animal sanctuary book writing. It's a career money has a very strong effect on kind of, it, you know, it can pull that fear trigger pretty easily, but sure. with, with an animal sanctuary, the dog sanctuary, the work my wife and I do uh, with dogs, it's hospice care, it's special needs care. It's very sick animals. It's often a matter of life and death. And when, I'm dealing with life or death issues on a daily basis, you know, with the with the animals. When I come back to the writing problem, the paragraph I was stuck on, things along those lines, it's no longer nearly as frightening because I've got something else going on that's a whole lot more frightening, and it calms that part of my brain down. And as a result, my brain can start reaching for far flung connections, and and you know, creativity is going to increase. Focus is actually going to increase too because it'll dial back. That norepinephrine, so I'll be able to really drill in.
1: There's so much there. I mean, like I, you know, it's. I read. I was looking as I was preparing for this this call. I was looking at some of your presentations that you've given and stuff online. And one of the one of the statements that I loved from uh, a presentation you gave on the rise of Superman is that oftentimes it's flow or die, right? And and you just gave a perfect example. Right there where you have this life or death situation that you're facing with these animals who need your focus and attention. And then you have this smaller thing that nobody's life is depending on. And and once you come back and connect to that, you're you you've eliminated all of this friction and created space.
0: One thing I just just for clarification's sake, because 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 I, you know, when I can I'd like to be accurate. Um, when I said flow or die, I was specifically looking at action adventure sport athletes and the top professionals. And, you know, in, in their situation, right, when you're a professional skier, snowboarder, and you've been helicoptered to the top of, you know, some 60 degree chute in Alaska with real fatal consequences anywhere, the level of performance required, you have to be in flow to be able to do that. Um, so, for those athletes, it is very much flow or die for sure. Now, what you talked about, though, you got it another idea that I'm fascinated by, and I think it's true. And I think it's one of these things about high performance that people don't like to say out loud because it alienates a huge portion of the audience in a sense. Uh, but I, I really do think that anytime you can have a no longer at the top of the food chain moment, Anytime you can kind of have high-risk, life-threatening situations in your, in, in your world, those are really good things. And I think one of the main reasons they're good, and I think you'll hear this from MMA fighters, boxers, football players, action adventure sport athletes of any variety, and anybody who kind of works around wildlife or things along those lines are in nature, right, where these kinds of experiences are much more common It's the exact same thing you're talking about. When you go out, even if it's you know you're just skiing with your buddies and you're doing 40 miles an hour through the trees, doesn't really feel all that life threatening. But you hit a tree at 40 miles an hour, it's life threatening. So you come back to your daily life after that, and everything is in perspective. You've actually your your brain understands mortal consequences really well, and it resets your entire nervous system.
1: I I I mean. (laughs) We could spend the whole entire podcast talking about that one concept and and I want to and we'll touch more on it uh, as we talk about stealing fire. Uh, But I want to I want you to share with our audience why you're so fascinated by this topic and and what the impact moment was that launched you on this trajectory.
0: Well, there's a a gazillion different ways I can tell that story. But the easiest way is to start maybe at the beginning. I have a kid brother, younger brother named Brad. And when I was, let's say, 10 and Brad was eight, seven, he came home from his friend's Eric's house. And I was hanging out in the kitchen with my mom. And he pulled out this red sponge ball, about the size of like a small golf ball. And he put it in his other hand and it vanished And the first thing I thought is, holy crap, that looked impossible. My brother just did something impossible. And since (laughs) I know he's my brother and I know he can't do the impossible, it must mean that impossible is possible. Second of all, he had suddenly gotten all of my mom's attention, which was just not okay, right? That was not going to happen. So I had to go out immediately and learn how to do Spongebob magic. And one of the lessons I learned – Hmm. doing magic. I did magic for almost a decade, made my living. And it was my first job. I started working by the time I was 11, literally a year later, I was doing birthday parties and, you know, bar mitzvahs and things like that. No joke. And uh, I was fascinated from that moment on with how does the impossible become possible? Because what I learned in magic was that, oh my God, underneath this thing that looks impossible, there's actually skills and techniques. That's essentially what I've done in my entire career. Right? I've spent my entire career saying, how do people do the impossible? And if you go through my books, Rise of Superman, it's how do action and adventure sport athletes reinvent kinesthetic possibility, right? extend the realm of the possible. In abundance and bold, I'm looking at entrepreneurs who built the fastest, largest companies in the history of the world in the shortest amount of time, or entrepreneurs and innovators taking on grand, global, and challenges Small, furry prayer, I looked at the kind of cutting edge of empathy and altruism. And the thing that I've noticed kind of across the board is it doesn't really matter where you go. Uh, The secret is the same. And one of the core secrets across the boards in high performance is that altered states of consciousness, whether you're talking about flow states, meditative and contemplative states, psychedelic states, awe states, Take your pick. They are the secret to high performance, and high performers everywhere know this. Lean mm-hmm. extremely heavily on this, and the rest of the world doesn't really talk about it because three states of consciousness have a really bad name.
1: Yeah, no, I and I definitely got that feeling in the book "Stealing Fire," which kind of it brings a lot of that to the forefront. It is, you know, addressing these controversial things are are the Kind of the crux of what you're writing about. And it's wrapped in story and examples. And so what is the number one thing that you want people to walk away from after reading Stealing Fire?
0: Well, I think there's, a, I mean, that's, there's no, I don't know if there's one answer, right? One thing that is, I think, important to know is that at the heart of Stealing Fire, you're sort of looking at a $4 trillion underground movement, right? In harnessing altered states of consciousness to massively up-level performance. And this is going on today, and it involves the top individual and organizational performers in the world. Fortune 100 companies, you know, Silicon Valley unicorns, the U.S. Navy SEALs, take your pick. You know, so the one thing that I want people to be aware of, I guess, is that we are in the middle of an amazing kind of revolution and high performance and what's really being unlocked is sort of the upper possibility space of human experience and that's incredible and four forces seem to be accelerating this i don't know if there's any way to put the genie back in the bottle is when it comes to those four forces so i think this is going to start weaving itself more and more and more into people's lives and we're already seeing you know examples of that everywhere so i don't know if that quite you answered me. your question but we'll start there well,
1: yeah, no, so let's start there. And then you mentioned the four forces, which I was going to talk about um, a little bit later. But why don't you elaborate a little bit about what those four forces are and why they're so important? Okay,
0: so let's let, let's just start at the beginning and put some language around what it is exactly that we're talking about. right? I'm talking about a sort of a specific bandwidth of non-ordinary states of consciousness where our normal sense of self vanishes where we tend our sense of normal sense of time disappears as well. We get this sense of effortless motivation, right? We're freed from kind of the normal toil and trouble of, of daily life. And we can tap into a level of inspiration, information um, that is normally unavailable to us. And this one definition, the, 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 that definition fits under a term we, we use in the book, the Greek term ecstasy because we thought altered states and not ordinary states, all these different terms were really problematic. And ecstasy was the Greek word for a state of consciousness where, you, you know, beyond your normal sense of self, where you tap into this heightened level of information and inspiration. And that's sort of where we started with it. Historically, our access to these states of consciousness has been really rare, right? Flow states were hard to get into, hard to figure out. Psychedelic experiences were sort of forever. They were limited by geography, where you were, by culture, what you were allowed to do and put in your system or not in your system. You know, the meditative techniques you had at your disposal were limited by the religion, you know, that tended to be dominant, etc., etc. And this, you know, was how it was throughout history. These were very rare, powerful experiences. What's happening now is because of advances in four fields. We call them the four forces for ecstasy psychology, neurobiology, pharmacology, and technology, we are seeing two major shifts. The first is, let's be clear, altered states of consciousness as performance-enhancing tools don't have the best track record, right? We've been down this road before, and as a general rule, when we go down this road, we get horribly lost, right? Ken Kesey sneaks LSD out of a Stanford research lab, all sorts of tie-dye help, break loose. In the 70s, we're going to use (laughs) sexual ecstatic techniques to pursue liberation. And what do we have? Spiking rates of marital dissatisfaction and divorce. In the 90s, it's rave culture. It starts out with talks of love and peace and MDMA and ends up with tabloid fodder and spiking emergency room visits, right? So this stuff has gone wrong. One of the reasons it's gone wrong is we have lacked the ability to do this stuff extremely precisely. We've been sort of hammering away at our consciousness with blunt instruments. These, the acceleration of these forces are making our instruments extremely, extremely precise. They're also bringing them to scale. So for the first time, you know, these experiences that, you know, some of the rarest in history, not only can we have them as individuals, we can share them together as a culture. These four forces are really changing everything
1: you have a lot of examples of these four forces at work in the book in both talking about the the seal team 6 and you know how larry and sergi search for their replacing replacement ceo and i noticed there are a lot of commonalities or at least themes that they both those examples primarily the the seal team 6 example and the google example shared which are number one they they both had set up a certain type of a quote unquote mind gym is how you refer to it in the book and then at, at to a certain degree everything is at stake you know in, in the sales case it it's you know do they do they shoot the right person the wrong person or do they themselves get uh, injured or killed and then there's also this accelerated learning capability that ends up happening as a result of engaging in I would imagine any one of these four forces to enhance that sense of selflessness timelessness effortlessness and and richness that you refer to in the book so I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on some of those commonalities that both the seals had and and the Googlers had despite the fact that they're doing completely different things?
0: Well, it's a great question. Good
1: observation and a great question.
0: And, I, you know, I, th- the place to start, I guess, is uh, let's leave the accelerated learning component uh, on the side for just a half a second and just jump into the other stuff. So the two sure. stories you referenced, the, 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 what we look at with the SEALs, when Jamie and I, you know, got, my, when I say Jamie, my, my co-writer uh, in Stealing Fire, and my partner in the Flow Genome Project, Jamie Wheel, and you know, credit where credit is due. Um, a lot of this book came out of Jamie's brain, so um, a lot of a lot of what we're talking about today are um, his ideas originally. So I, you know, got to start there. Uh, but the seals, when we, we we got a chance to spend some time with the seals, and one of the things that we learned is that once you get past kind of basic skill acquisition and, and an incredible level of fitness, obviously almost everything that we think of as Navy SEAL training is actually a giant filter for their ability to produce group flow. Group flow is the shared collective version of a flow state, right? If a flow state is an individual performing at their peak, group flow is a group performing at their peak. And one of the things that happens in group flow is you get this an incredible, heightened sense of collaboration and cooperation. It happens for all kinds of different reasons. For example, when you're in these states, you get no, more norepinephrine and dopamine released into your brain, and these are performance-enhancing, feel-good chemicals that do a lot of things. But one of the things they do is they increase the amount of information we can take in per second, and the brain's pattern recognition ability—the ability to link that information to older ideas. So when you're a SEAL team moving through a hostile territory and you need to move and think as one, massively heightened pattern recognition, massively heightened attention, massively heightened information flow, this is literally the secret to being a SEAL, right? It's It's what's going to keep you alive. So the SEALs screen for this. And one of the things we learned is that the screening was sort of heartbreaking to them. 80% of the SEAL candidates, if you're moving to the SEAL Team 6, or, or what they call DEVGRU, the, the, the top of the SEAL teams, um, and there are nine in total, 80% of candidates wash out. And it is it's extremely expensive to train a Navy SEAL. And what was more important to them was there was a lot of emotional cost. Some of these guys couldn't bounce back from failure, and it seemed to devastate careers and lives. And they were really, you know, there was a lot of empathy in the room when they were talking about this. And in an attempt to solve that problem, because there has been this revolution in neurobiology over the past decade, they have started to be able to figure out what is sort of going on under the hood in group flow, and they've created the Mind Gym to try to train up these skills. And the Mind Gym is sort of the coolest brain hacking tools and text you could possibly imagine in the world, and it's everything from kind of EEG feedback devices to pattern recognition, VR games, to take your pick, and and this is this is directly to your accelerated learning. When we were there and touring the Mind Gym, in the back of it, we bumped into a isolation float tank, right? And this was the you know the float pods that were developed by John Lilly back in the '60s. Once he started sort of experimenting with LSD and ketamine inside them, they became like countercultural curiosity and the Theme for that famous movie, Altered States. Um, and that was just about it, right? And um the funny thing is, by the way, John Lilly actually developed the isolation flow tank because he tank because he wanted to keep state-changing technology out of the hands of the military. It's a long story that we sort of recount in the book, but ironically, we're at the SEALs, and there the technology is again, right back in the, you know, in the center of the military industrial complex, and the SEALs. Isolation flow tanks alter consciousness because they cut off all the you know all the inputs we use to keep track of time, create our sense of self. All those things are removed. Seals had gussied it up with all kinds of sort of neural feedback, cardiac coherence, all kinds of neat stuff, and they were using it to drive people into kind of non ordinary states of consciousness and train them up in foreign languages. And you gotta you gotta realize like the seals. I think they deploy, they can be deployed in five international theaters simultaneously. Each one requires a different language. It's complicated. And they really like you can't, if you're undercover as a SEAL and you're in Afghanistan, you better speak the language properly, right? And the best they had ever done with language acquisition skills was six months. And by training people up inside of their float tank with the neural feedback, they'd cut it down to six weeks. So massively accelerated learning by harnessing, you know, a couple of different state changing technologies um,
1: in a really interesting way. That's so fascinating. And then in Google's in the story you tell with Google, you've got Larry and Sergey who are trying, you know, get pressure to replace their CEO. They're failing. Everything's at stake. And they end up taking a candidate to Burning Man and everything happens there.
0: (laughs) So the first thing you have to understand is as crazy as this comparison sounds, one of the things that we've learned in this kind of neurobiological revolution is if you look at flow states, psychedelic states, the states of consciousness people get at transformative festivals like Burning Man, uh, meditative states, contemplative states, under the hood, the knobs and levers being tweaked in the brain, are very much the same. There are certainly individual differences, and, and, and we can argue over the details, but one of the reasons all these experiences feel the same, right, that selflessness, effortlessness, timelessness, and richness that you talked about, and I, the, they, they share that same feeling as they share the same underlying neurobiology. And you know what Larry and Sergey were interested in when they were looking for their new CEO and, and they, they wanted to... They wanted to use Burning Man in the same way that the SEALs use SEAL training as a screen for group flow, right? It was really important for, uh, I'm paraphrasing a, a John Markov quote from the New York Times because I can't reach into my memory banks and get it, but, you know, John said they, you know, when when the board demanded adult supervision for, for Google, what was really important for Larry and Sergey was to, like, find somebody who could kind of tame Google without ringing out that genius, And they needed somebody who could drop into flow with the teams. So they took Eric Schmidt to Burning Man because it's a crazy, chaotic environment where anything can happen. There's lots of novelty, complexity and unpredictability. And they wanted to see what would happen. Could he, you know, drop into group flow, which is very common at Burning Man. There's all kinds of, you know, research done out of Stanford and elsewhere that talks about group. Burning man is a trigger for Group Flow and why it works. And, you know, so could could Eric Schmidt drop into this state or or not? And, you know, turns out he could. Turns out they hired him, and the result, you know, was one of the, you know, great monster companies of the 21st century.
1: So now you have, you know, all of these elite athletes. You've got the the SEAL team six, you've got the the leaders of uh Google, you've got leaders of Oracle, you've got Elon Musk, you've got all of these people, Peter Diamandis, you've had all these people that are, are able to, to access a flow state to, that leads to higher performance and, and optimal performance. Is there a common denominator among all of them that you've seen in order to get to that state?
0: Well, I've seen a lot of common denominators. Across I mean across the boards. And, and you know, Stealing Fire is not just about flow, right? It's about the kind of the full spectrum of non-ordinary states of consciousness. And it's right. also not just elite performers, right? When we, you talk about one of the interesting things about kind of understanding what's going on under the hood, is suddenly you start to realize that, like, all the elite performers you just mentioned and the yoga moms right? Or soccer moms with yoga practices. And the 48% of businesses that are going to roll out mindfulness programs this year or next. and The kind of Dave Asprey smart drug biohacking crowd, right? People who are, you know, Wall Street guys who are zapping their brains with electrodes to artificially induce flow and help them make better trade. Across the boards, it's this huge revolution in non-ordinary states. So, the first thing i think i'm seeing we're seeing is a recognition of what's really going on right i mean the, the 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 idea it's interesting turn of the 19th century 1902 harvard psychologist william james considered you know by many the most brilliant american in history and i might be one of those i'm not 100% certain but i might be one of those um, points out <laughs> that hey man Flow states, awe, psychedelic experiences, meditative states, mystical states, all these things seem to permanently change us for the better. They unlock these new levels of creativity, they seem to heal us from trauma, they make us more feel more alive, feel life be, was more meaningful, you know, makes all these pronouncements. Two things happen. The first thing that happens is that Freud shows up, and Freud says, Hey, wait a minute. I'm not so into these psychological possibilities. I'm really interested in in, in using this stuff to solve pathological problems. And psychology essentially takes a hundred year detour around all these north of happy experiences. Simultaneously, a lot of evidence starts to accrue that James is right. Right. In the 50s, Maslow realizes that peak experiences correlate directly to success. In the 70s and 80s, Chick High notices that flow states correlate to the happiest people on earth, the people who score off the charts for life satisfaction and well-being. In the 90s, Willoughby, Britton discovers people who've had near-death experiences. Their brains are literally rewired, and they tend to test off the charts for happiness and life satisfaction and fear of death and all these other metrics. And- you know, in the thousands, the evidence continues to accrue. At this point, I would say that one of the most well-established facts in the whole history of psychology is that altered states are incredibly good for us, and it's not common knowledge.
1: It's, it's it, you know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading this book as and reflecting on The Rise of Superman is that there seems to be a common theme of a need to play, a need to move, and a need for a certain amount of friction in order to arrive at any sort of these states using all of the the four forces that that you talked about and and providing that that sense of selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness, which I think are really great. Uh, ways to summarize what ultimately is trying to be achieved, or the experience that that's being achieved when you're when you're in this kind of state. And I just wonder what your take is on the need to have those three components in order to to get to a, a point where you can arrive in flow. And I recognize that we're not talking specifically about just just flow, but really, I mean. Uh, this book that you've written is is talking about the, the the emergence of the recognition or the commercialization of higher states, essentially.
0: So that's a great question and a really neat observation. You said friction,
1: play, movement, and, and movement. yeah. Mm-hmm. So
0: and we 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 definitely cover you know movement. I mean, movement is at the center of Rise of Superman. We know sort of what's known as kind of deep embodiment, which is when you engage multiple senses at once, when that happens, you're driving attention into the present moment, which is one of the main things that drives flow. So that being in your body is, you know, it is a trigger for flow. It is obviously a trigger for non-ordinary states of consciousness. We have, you know, trance dancing that people do in Pentecostal churches and trance dancing that people do at raves Right. And, you know, in Stealing Fire, we, we, we sort of peel back the veil on it and, and talk about the new science of embodied cognition, which basically tells us what, you know, we've known for a while now, which is the mind-body split is ridiculous. Our, you know, our brain is a whole body system. Right. And if you engage the whole body, you can really shortcut a lot of nonsense. Really. And, and, and in really simple ways that we've seen, you know, the evidence of this goes everywhere from like, you know, Amy Cuddy's TED talk. We're standing in a power pose for a couple of minutes, you know, changes physiology, raises testosterone, does a whole bunch of, you know, other really neat stuff all the way up through kind of, you know, what you see in Shaolin Kung Fu or Tai Chi or those, you know, embodied martial arts where there's a long tradition of, of, of using the body as a way to change the mind. So you're seeing that for sure. Play, I think, is absolutely everywhere. Uh, For a similar reason, we often talk about um, kind of passion as a flow trigger, right? And that's for the simple reason that we pay more attention to those things that we believe in. Uh, And I think play is sort of the other side of that. I think, you know, play allows us to kind of Investigated in a much more free-wheeling way, you tend to get greater conditions for pattern recognition, the linking together ideas, which is actually another trigger for flow. Whenever that happens, you get a little release of dopamine that tends to drive flow. So there's, you know, there's commonalities there and friction too. I can, you know, you see this over and over and over. Top performers, you know, use fear as a compass. They go, you know, when they wonder what direction should I go in next? You know, what scares me the most? You see a lot of that. It's a focusing mechanism again, provides a lot of state
1: change. You know, it's, it's, it is, I mean, it's, it's something that I've, I've been thinking in particular about friction as, as a catapult to, to high performance and how to dial in friction.
0: You want to, you know, not my hack at all. It's Simon Simic's hack, as far as I know. But one of the coolest hacks for that, I believe, and it's the one I deploy, is remembering that anxiety and excitement are physiologically the exact same signal. Mm. Same thing happens. Cortisol goes up, norepinephrine goes up. Same exact thing. The only thing different between them is the frame you build around them. So oftentimes, when I'm feeling anxiety, I reframe it. I'm like, hey, wait a minute, man. That could be excitement, and maybe you just don't have enough information right now. Or, you know, what happens if you think about this as excitement? And as a tool in the moment-by-moment, it really does seem to allow me to kind of use fear as a compass all the time. Because my options when I'm feeling excitement are much greater than when I'm feeling fear. Right. The yeah, more, the absolutely. more yeah. right? the more gripped you get, the less options you get. With the classic ultimate example being the fight or flight response, when you your options are reduced to three, right? Or the opposite end of that spectrum, which is flow, which is heightened performance, optioned wide open. I can go into any direction I want and I'm going to be excellent.
1: You know, I, I was I was thinking going back to Google and and the whole mind gym and play, and you know kind of riffing off the concept of play and you know Google as you talk about in the book has set up a, a place where their you know employees can can go to kind of hack into this system a little bit. But I, I was as I was reading it, I, I wondered if companies like Google or like oracle or any of these companies that require their employees to work you know almost around the clock to a certain degree are going to have a challenge getting them to develop the ability to switch to switch from just a normal productivity state to a, a heightened productivity using some of these 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 tools and tricks
0: you know it's interesting because you, you you know it's not just Google. I mean, what Google has done, we never really kind of broke. They built their own mind gym, right? It's there. They've taken, you know, they've they've added a biofeedback and a neurofeedback uh, layer to their mindfulness training. Is really what they've done. Very similar to kind of what this what the seals are doing, just minus the flow tanks. But you gotta you've got to realize it's 18 million Americans now have a some kind of regular meditation or mindfulness practice. I think by the end of, uh, 2017, 44% of companies are going to offer mindfulness training to employees. And, you know, the, as far as the reason we're just talking mindfulness, you forget everything else for a second, you know, that ethnic study, I don't know if you have seen it. They found that, you know, after rolling out their mindfulness training, they gain $3,000 per employee in productivity. They save $2,000 per employee in healthcare costs, right? You're seeing the same thing with yoga, where, you know, on and on with all these kind of state changing technologies, they're getting more and more incorporated kind of into the work environment. And you're seeing, you know, all Patagonia has a totally different approach. Patagonia has their corporate offices are right on the Pacific Ocean. And Yvonne Chouinard, who you know, founder of Patagonia is a great outdoor athlete and he has a let my people go surfing policy. And one of the reasons is surfing is a phenomenal trigger for flow, packed with flow triggers, drives people into flow. And if McKinsey's data is to be believed that top executives in flow are 500% more productive than out of flow, you know, the policy of letting employees go surfing whenever the hell they want to. Makes total sense, right? Sure, you just walked out of a meeting to go surfing and what the hell. But if you come back and you're 500% more productive, yeah, you should go surfing. So, you know, we're seeing it incorporated in businesses in lots of ways. I think the biggest challenge to me, and it's the first thing I say when 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 I work with organizations, and it's the hardest ones for organizations to wrap their head around is, all this stuff requires uninterrupted concentration. You have to be able to turn off your cell phone, your, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, your phone, your pager, whatever, shut your door, you know, and go away for two, three, four hours at a time. And mm-hmm. that's the priority switch that's going to be very difficult. I'm we're seeing it for sure. Um, top companies are, are starting to move in that direction a little bit, but that's going to be the hardest one.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, I think that you, you mean you brought up surfing, which ties into that, you know, movement is, is definitely a, another major trigger, you know, runners, athletes of all kinds. But the other thing that, that I, I just really think about Is that most of the key examples that you you gave in in Stealing Fire, be it the seals, be it Google, be it uh, the the Oracle race team, everything is on the line to a certain degree. Sometimes life or death. Sometimes the success or failure of a business, or the the, or the the, uh, the complete failure of a race where you're you're the owner of that team invested $10 million to, to win. Um, and you have to change your entire way of thinking, but, but everything's on the line. And I, I just wonder like, how the average person at, at these companies is going to figure out a way or the company has got to create a space such as you just gave uh, the "Let My People Go Surfing" rule.
0: No, there's. I mean, there be. Uh, you. So, I think on a certain level, I mean, you're pulling out examples that are very cutting edge out of um out of, out of out of a book where I think there's a little bit more of of a bandwidth because we definitely are seeing you know this stuff in all kinds of you know non-contact situations for sure. But you are, you know, getting at, you know, risk is a great flow trigger. We know uh, what's called the challenge skills ratio is, is known as the golden rule of flow. And and that says that, you know, we get the most flow. We pay mo- the most attention to the present moment, basically, when the challenge of the task at hand slightly ex- exceeds our skill set, right? So you're always stretching. There's always risk. But the important thing to know is, doesn't have to be physical risk, emotional risk, psychological risk, social risk. The reason, you know, fear of public speaking is the number one fear in the world is because um, of how much, you know, social risk focuses our attention kind of thing. So what you really need to kind of put this into an organizational culture is one of two things at at a macroscopic scale. One, you need Silicon Valley's you know, attitude of fail forward, rapid experimentation, lots of little experiments, because if you don't give employees the space to fail, right, they can't take the risks they need that gives you the easy access to flow. So that's, you know, one way, uh, one way in that that, that certainly matters. And you, you definitely, you know, you definitely have to see that level of freedom in organizations who want to kind of capitalize on this.
1: Yeah and then did you mention there was a second thing that that organizations need to do in order to ingrain this in the culture?
0: Well I think there's um lots of well rapid experimentation and um, is is one and you know a fell forward attitude is the second one.
1: Oh okay okay got it got it. You know
0: this is something that comes out of the work in in bold at John Hagel's work at at Deloitte plays into the Salim Ismail's work at Singularity University. A lot of people have kind of figured this out that You know, if you do want to kind of do this level of kind of innovation in organizations and create this kind of culture, move it towards the edge, right? Put it in little skunk works, try it out there. Don't try to shift the entire organization at once.
1: Yeah, small small things. It's you know, and I was talking to somebody the other day about who has this really big goal that they want to achieve, but they're stuck in their current reality and they're having a hard time moving forward and you know, I, I talked to them about the whole moonshot concept, which is, you know, it, you know, Pierre Dean mondes wants to mind, you know, asteroids, but he doesn't just launch a ship up there and do it. He takes small incremental steps in order to get that done. Uh, and the same thing with all of your brilliant work and, and your partner's brilliant work and anybody who's starting anything that's going to be successful.
0: You know, what, there, there's, there's a lot in there. But one of the things I believe I've learned from kind of top innovators, right, across the boards, and, 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 you know, as a journalist, when I started out, my beat, among many other things, but one of my main focuses was those points that science fiction became science fact. So, like, what did it take to invent the future? That was another one of the impossibles that I was really, really, really uh, fascinated by. And one of the things I, I learned along the way, almost every innovator i met who sort of had taken on these kinds of grand challenges really emphasized that from a work perspective you only have 24 hours in a day and it is going to take almost as much energy to build the best dry cleaning business in cleveland ohio as it is to kind of start an asteroid mining company and i know that sounds crazy but it's really the size of the vision that's the real difference energy wise it's going to take the same it's going to consume you at the same level it's just the size of the vision and sometimes in the case of a lot of moonshots and this is one of the reasons that peter goes after moonshots and google goes after moonshots is it's almost easier to go 10x than it is just to go for a 10% increase because you throw out so many of your existing assumptions and perceptions and technologies and starting with a blank slate and this kind of innovation seems to have a lot of benefits. It certainly has what, you know, where they tried at Google or, or Peter, the way Peter's done
1: it. Um, have, have you ever met Stefan Aristol? He's the CEO of tower paddle boards, uh, which is a lifestyle company based in San Diego. He was a sh- successful shark tank company. Mark Cuban invested in him, uh, in his company. And he just wrote a book called the five hour work day. Basically, the the premise of the his initial goal was to give his employees their their lives back, but they still had to get all the same amount eight hours of work done in five in five hours. And what the result is is that their productivity their their revenues have gone up by I think forty plus percent. Uh, and obviously, everybody checks out at one and has the rest of their day to do whatever it is that they want. But because there's this this time constraint, this friction, you know, they're, they're able to perform. And it's a, it's a great book. And if you want an introduction, I'd be happy to, to connect you guys because he's, he's a fascinating dude also.
0: Oh, I'd love to talk to him. That sounds like an amazing experiment. I, I, you know, I can see a dozens of, dozen reasons why it would work. I'm interested in how it's going to work long term. Oh, you know what? By the way, there was a second thing. That a company organization to do which is go the japanese kaizen route which is put everybody in charge of making every part of the company better at all times that seems interesting
1: one of the ways you can sort of sustain it so empowerment so so empowerment of employees at, at 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 scale
0: let's just i mean we're just talking about flow here but autonomy seems to be another flow trigger Right. When we when we get to drive our own ship, um, that grabs a hold of more of our attention. When we can pursue mastery, Dan Pink's work that grabs hold of more of our attention. Right. Once our kind of fundamental safety security needs are met, we crave autonomy, mastery and purpose. Three things that all when they when we get them grab hold of our attention, seem to drive flow and, you know, giving People responsibility for kind of every component on the assembly line and, you know, letting anybody, you know, make innovation suggestions and take ownership really does drive attention, drives engagement, drives flow, drives performance.
1: Yeah, I know I I love that. You know, and and going back to the the five-hour workday example, one of the things that he brings up in the book is the history of work, essentially, and productivity. And over the last 30 years. Productivity has gone up like 80%, but wages have only gone up 11. And so you have a lot of people that are scrambling right now uh, trying to figure out how to make more money and still balance their life. And because we no longer have an assembly line kind of production model uh, in, in the world, you have all of these people who who don't have the ability to, to pivot. And- and adapt new skills in order to get into this hyper state of productivity, which everybody should definitely go by stealing fire and your previous books rise of Superman and bold and abundance. I didn't realize that you co wrote abundance with um, with Peter. I didn't I didn't realize that. Yeah, I love that book. Oh, well, thank you. You know, Stephen, I want to I want to thank you for your work and your research and the impact that you're having in the world and the awareness you're bringing to this i i believe that we are all created with the potential to do more than we can possibly ask for or possibly imagine and i think that being able to to have people such as yourself on the planet that are doing this this research and this study and providing this information for us to consume and digest and implement is uh, a gift that is something we cannot really measure with with the exception of buying your book.
0: Well, that's very nice of you to say. But I I have to tell you, I you know, I think we there with this is I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, And I think it's a giant DIY movement by people who think that we're capable of a lot more than we're pulling off. Right. And that's really what's at the heart of this and I think you're doing the same work as I'm doing and I appreciate it right back at you.
1: well one of the things that I actually I was just contemplating um, a moment ago was was whether or not people are more prone to entering to to getting into that high performance flow state in a group environment uh, versus being able to get into that same high performance state. Uh, Autonomously by themselves. Like, for instance, myself, I just knowing my nature, I think that I would be more prone to being able to get into that, you know, group flow state, as you refer to it, uh, in a a group environment and have a way more difficult time doing it individually. Is that something you guys have studied or researched? Uh,
0: A lot. As a matter of fact, um, so if you go to the Flow Genome Project, flowgenomeproject.com, on the homepage, you'll see a free flow profile. And it's a tradeology. It says if you're this kind of person, you're likely to find flow in these situations. And one of the situations uh, is solely somebody who fits into your category, who gets into flow most readily in group flow. Um, this study has become really huge. I mean, we've got an incredibly lucky having having the web to kind of do research is such a luxury. Some 50,000 people have taken the study. So we can say for certain that you are not the uh, dominant category. The 48% of almost 50,000 people find the most flow. They're falling into what we call the deep thinker category, doing kind of contemplative and creative work. That said, I will tell you something that is interesting and that we also know, and that this is not my work. This is work that was done at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, but we know that uh, people do actually prefer group flow to individual flow. So the shared flow state is actually the most pleasurable experience on earth. It's pe- it's the experience people rate as as like it's the pinnacle. It's it's it. But it is not the easiest gateway for everybody. And I like by the way, my own that's my experience as well. I you know I often joke that like you know I'm I cannot for the life of me, go to, I mean, I've been to Burning Man a number of times um, and I will go back because I'm frustrated because I never have that group flow transformative festival experience. I don't, right? (laughs) It's just, it it doesn't happen to me. I get, you know, I find the most, these experiences, you know, are the easiest way for me is high risk sport. I need to hurl myself down mountains at high speeds.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I kind of am prone that, to that, I think myself also.
0: Or I have to write, by the way, or I have to like, and it's and it's usually, you know, the easiest way is when I'm trying to do something style, when I really have a sense of the style and the flavor, much more, much more important for me for bringing out flow than, than the
1: content. Such a fascinating conversation. I have a couple more questions and then we'll let you get on to uh, to crushing the rest of your day. And the first is really important, which is how can people connect with you and where can we send them to get your book when it goes live? Well, stealingfirebook.com
0: is the easiest place. Um, And uh, there's a great kind of pre-order campaign with just amazing, amazing prizes, or I guess they're not prizes, but... Amazing gifts along the way. So check that out. Stephencotler.com. Uh I'm Stephen underscore Cotler on Twitter, com. Come take your free flow profile. Figure out what's, you know, the easiest way you can you can get more flow in your life
1: for sure. Awesome. And this final question is the most important question. And it's a big one. And it is, how will you measure your life?
0: I don't know. I gotta tell you. I'm going to give you an honest answer to this question because there's lots of ways I could measure my life. But I do believe that powder skiing is the best I get to feel on this planet. And in a good winter, I get about 10 10 great days of powder skiing. In get about probably 40 days on the hill, 50 days on the hill, 10 days of powder skiing. And I'm going to be 50 years old right now I've got, I don't know, 30 more years of powder skiing in my life. So I can, you know, it's 300 days, basically. That's what I've got left of, of the best I I feel on the planet. So mm. I think if I could manage to double that number, that might be a great,
1: great win for me. I love it. I love I love the honest answer, I love it. Well, Steven, thank you so much again for, for impacting us and our audience today. And uh, we look forward to sharing this content with the world. Hey man, it was fun talking to you. Stephen, thank you for being on the show today. Such a fascinating topic. We thank you for sharing with us some of the ways we might hack our brain to achieve higher levels of performance in life and at work. If you missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at the impactentrepreneur.net forward slash 48 for all the key points and highlights of our conversation with Stephen. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lawton Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We couldn't do this show without them. Until next time, go make an impact.